Right. So this morning, um, we're going to stand up and worship here in a second. I, I don't know how many of you have school-age kids, but we have, we're in our second week, going into our third week of school, and it's been a week of adjustments, right? So we're just all kind of getting used to new times to eat and new times to go to bed. And I was in, um, I, I work at the schools. So I'm the communications director at Three Lakes School District, and I'm in a lot of classrooms taking pictures. And the first day of school, I was in the kindergarten classroom over at Sugar Camp, and I cannot tell you how many times the kids ask their teacher, when is lunch? Is it almost lunch? Is it almost lunch? And she was going like, we're going to eat soon. I promise it'll be soon. And that's how like this last week has felt to everybody. Like all we really care about is when is lunch, I think. So anyway, if you want to stand up and um, we're going to start out with a, um, a worship song this morning.
You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be gathered with you here this morning. My name, if you're visiting or new, is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. And if you are visiting at the church, we are a community wants to be about desire to be about three things. Right? We want to be about reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Christ, and serving other people. So just that's what we want to be about here as a church. We want to provide avenues for for each of us to be able to do those things. And so when it comes to reaching people with the gospel, right, I think we're convinced that like, the best way to do that is by being engaged with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and being out in in the community and being involved in those ways. Like that's how we're going to reach people with the gospel. When it comes to growing to be like Christ, we have a couple opportunities to do that. One is through through small groups, which we're going to start in mid-October. And so if you are interested in small groups, there are cards on the back table just outside of the sanctuary you can fill out and drop in the offering box and we will we'll be in contact with you. If you've already signed up for one of those groups, we, will, we have your information. We'll be in contact soon about when those groups will be meeting and what works best for you. But the, the books we'll actually be reading are... On, on your way out, on the bookshelf on the right, the book Gentle and Lowly. If you've signed up and you're interested in a small group, you can grab a copy of those. Those are provided for us by Crossway, with the only stipulation being that they be used to serve the church. And so even if you're not sure if you want to be in a small group, but that book sounds interesting to you, you can grab a copy on your way out. If that runs out, we have more. Um, we can get those to you. Another way we want to grow to be like Christ is through through Sunday school and through um, cross-training, which is our kind of sermon discussion time. And that starts today after we took the summer off. And so I'm going to invite up Pastor Ian, who is our family pastor here. He's going to talk a little bit about Sunday school. Good morning. So Sunday school kicks off today at 10.30 for kids, 10.45 for, uh, for cross-training, if you want to be involved with that. If you're involved in Sunday school as a teacher, could I, you just stand up for a second? I know we've got a couple here. Thank you so much for doing that. It's awesome that you guys have put in all the work for um, teaching in Sunday school. We really appreciate it, and uh, we couldn't do it without you. Um, right after service, we're going to have a short meeting in here um, if you are involved in Sunday school. So if you have a kid in Sunday school, if you're a teacher, or if you are, are a kid in Sunday school, then you probably should be at the Sunday school meeting. So that's directly after service. It'll be right in here and just some a short orientation of where you go, what we're doing, and that kind of thing. So along with what you said, they're going to have a meeting in here right after the service. And so if you're not involved in Sunday school, if you could kind of make your way out at least to the foyer, if not downstairs, kind of fairly quickly after the service so they can start their meeting here. And then, as he said, we'll gather back here at 1045 for anyone who's interested in joining our sermon discussion time after that. Um, all right, the, third, the third thing we want to be about at the church is, is serving others. And so a couple ways to do that. One is, speaking at Sunday school, you could use like an extra couple set of hands in our, in our three- and four-year-old classrooms if you're interested in helping out with that. That would be great in contact the church office. Another way to serve is coming up in a few weeks here. There's uh, the Three Eagle 5K and Half Marathon, and 
that the church will be kind of helping with an aid station on that route. And so Nate Coach is kind of heading that up for us. Um, and so we're looking for people who are going to be there and pass out water and just kind of man that aid station. So if you're interested in that, you can talk to, to Nate. A couple more announcements. Today is Communion Sunday. Um, we're going to take communion at the end of the service. And so there are individualized wafer and juice containers on the table just outside the um, sanctuary as you walked in. If you missed those, you can sneak out at some point and grab one of those. So we'll take those at the end of the service. And then along with communion, when we take communion, we also get take a, a benevolence offering. So that's kind of dedicated offering for meeting the needs of our community. And so uh, on your way out, there'll be somebody at the, at the back door with a plate. Right? That plate will be for dedicated benevolence gifts. If you want to give your regular tithes and offerings, those can be dropped in the boxes on the back wall. Because as Ian said, we're incredibly thankful for the people who have given their time to, to making Sunday school happen, to be able to serve our kids and our families that way. As a parent of young kids myself, I'm very thankful for the way um, those people have given their time. So we're going to pray now for, for Sunday school, for those teachers, and just for the growth of our children and families as we head into this year of Sunday school. Would you pray with me? Father, we come and we thank you for the way you've gathered this whole church body from young families to older people. You've brought all these people together. You have a purpose for each one of us from the youngest to the oldest. You've made us to be dependent and need each other. We need people from all generations. And I praise you for the way there's so many people here who desire to serve our younger generations, to teach and to mold our youngest people in this church family. We praise you for our Sunday school teachers, for the people who give their time behind the scenes to make Sunday school run, for Pastor Ian and his leadership. As we head into this school year and Sunday school year, right at the church, we pray that you would be at work through through conversations that happen between Sunday school teachers and children, between conversations that happen at home, um, just related to what was taught and learned in Sunday school, that you'd be with teachers, you'd be with parents, that they have those conversations with children that our children would learn and grow and come to a deeper knowledge of who you are, that some would trust in you for the first time this school year, that you would work in a mighty way. We just praise you for the way you've raised up servants who are willing to serve in the capacity. We pray that you be honored and glorified by all that takes place in our Sunday school classrooms this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And I ask you to stand as we um, begin some worship this morning. So as Pastor mentioned, this is a communion Sunday. We're going to um, sing some songs that have, are, they're just riddled with truths, right? And our job as a worship team up here is to lead you into worship. And so we're just, we're the, the conduit. We're helping you guys focus on those words, sing those songs, and prepare for communion and prepare for the sermon at the end. So as we're singing, just really reflect on that and open your hearts.
triumph this morning. You are great and you do great things. Yeah, God, I, I confess that so many of those great things I take for granted. So much of the great things you've done for me, I don't appreciate as I should. I give myself credit for them instead of giving you praise. Please thank you, God, for this chance this morning to sing these songs, to remind myself of your greatness, of your power, the ways you've blessed us, the way you care for us, all the great things you've done for us. And I just pray that you would help each of us day by day to not take those great things for granted. That we would praise you for all that you do for us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before we jump in here, one announcement I forgot. The next next Saturday, the 18th, we're going to have a uh, churchwide fall gathering out at uh, the Russell's Farm. So the address is in the bulletin. Um, but starting at 3 o'clock next Saturday, we invite you to bring a game you want to play or bring a dish to pass, and we'll just kind of spend time together out there at the church family. So I invite you to join us for that. So this morning, like we're going we're gonna to start a, a new series going through the book of Psalms. We've been going through the book of Luke for the last 13 weeks in the book of Luke. We're going to take a little break from that and spend the next five weeks in the book of Psalms. And as you can see, I've subtitled this series, A Song for Every Occasion. And the reason for that is that the book of Psalms, more than any other book in the Bible puts words to all the diversity of emotion that comes with human life. You can find psalms of unspeakable joy, and you can find psalms where the author wrestles with deep despair and gloom. There are psalms where the author is angry with God, and there are psalms where he is totally at peace. And there are psalms where the author swings between peace and anger, even if it's in the same psalm. What the psalms do for us, they give us, they give us confidence that we can come to God no matter where we're at. Right? No matter where our emotions are, we can come and bring them to God. Nothing is going to drive God away in terms of what we're feeling. And the psalms also give us a, a vocabulary that we need sometimes of what it looks like to wrestle with God. How do we express ourselves to God in a way that is helpful and honest. And I've seen in five weeks, we're not going to look at all 150 psalms together. But my hope is over the next five weeks, we're going to look at five different psalms, and my hope is to look at, kind of cover the range of emotion found within the psalms. You may wonder, like, why, why five weeks in particular? And, like, a bit of the answer is that, like, Many people have classified the Psalms in many different ways, but kind of the most common way to classify the Psalms is to break them into five different categories. And those categories are, one, royal Psalms, second, Psalms of lament, third, Psalms of thanksgiving, fourth, wisdom Psalms, 
and fifth, psalms of praise or hymns. And so, in each of the next five, we kind of look at one of each kind of psalm. One of one royal psalm, one psalm of lament, one psalm of thanksgiving, one wisdom psalm, and one psalm of praise. And so, today we're going to start by looking at a, a royal psalm. And we're going to look at Psalm 2 together. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 2. If you don't have one, you want one, there should be one in the seat in front of you. I chose to start here in Psalm 2 for a number of reasons. Like one, the Psalms 1 and 2 are the only two Psalms in the entire first part of the whole book of Psalms that don't have some kind of statement of authorship or some kind of inscription before them. They don't have that. And most scholars seem to agree that that's an indication that those Psalms are to be understood as an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. They're there to serve as an introduction to the whole Psalter. So we're looking at Psalm 2. Not only do we get a a royal psalm, but we also get an introduction to the psalms themselves. And the other reason I chose to start with Psalm 2 is that Psalm 2 is the psalm that the New Testament quotes most often. It is quoted quoted or alluded to 18 times throughout the New Testament. And one of the more significant allusions to Psalm 2 happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, where God says of Jesus, this is my son. And we'll see, like, that comes right out of this psalm. And so since just a couple weeks ago we looked at the Transfiguration from the book of Luke, this psalm seemed like a good place to start. So with all that to kind of set the stage for the series as a whole, going through Psalm, like, let's jump into this sermon in particular. So as you probably know, today is the first Sunday of football season. And like for some of you, that's great news. For some of you, that's like annoying because it's another thing to plan around or whatever else. But like it's the first Sunday of football season. And for many reasons, I, I find myself caring a little bit less this year than I have in years past. But like, that's not to say like I don't care this year. I guess just to say that I had a very high bar in previous year for like how much I cared. I'm trying to lower that a little bit. And like one of those years that I cared really deeply was 2014. And because I cared so deeply, like the way 2014 Packers season started was incredibly frustrating. Like the Packers lost two of their first three games. Now, if you're here and you cheer for like the Bears or the Vikings or something, like that may seem normal. But like <laughs> But for Packer fans, like we're used to a higher level of success. Right? And so like losing two of the first three games was cause for great concern. So, like I wasn't living in Wisconsin at the time, so I couldn't listen to local sports talk radio. But I imagine that if I had listened to local sports talk radio and you like heard the call in from all these Packer fans, like, you would get the impression like the world was ending after those first three games. Right? It seemed like that everyone with an interest in the Packers was like, on the brink of full-on panic. Everyone, that is, except for Aaron Rodgers. Right? Following that second loss, like, Rodgers went on one of these local sports talk radio shows, and he gave this now-famous interview where he, where he says this. He says, Five letters here, just for everyone out there in Packerland. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. 
we're going to be okay. So Rodgers makes that statement, tells everybody to relax, and the next week, the Packers go out and they beat the Bears 38-17. And the week after that, they go out and beat the Vikings 42-10. to And from there, the Packers just keep on winning. Right? After losing two of their first three games of the season, they would only lose two of their last 13 games and finish the year 12-4. and But the question that's pertinent this morning is like, what gave Rodgers so much confidence to make that statement? How was he so sure that the Packers were going to be okay, that they were going to bounce back from this? I think, at least in part, the answer is that Rodgers, by that point, had played so much football that he knew how things went in the NFL. Sometimes these things just happen. He had lots of experience. He was familiar with the ups and downs of the NFL. And he also knew that he was one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And that the quarterback performance has like an outsized effect on how well the team does. So Rodgers knew that as long as he played well, the Packers would be fine, that they would be impo- nearly impossible to beat. And he had enough confidence to believe that he was going to start playing better, and so everything would be fine. So here's the big point. The amount of familiarity you have with the situation and the amount of control you have over that situation directly impact how anxious you feel in a given situation. The amount of familiarity you have and the amount of control you have directly impact the level of anxiety you feel in a given situation. Rogers had played a lot of football in his life. He knew what it takes to win games. And as a quarterback, like, no one has more control over the game than he does. So his familiarity and his control gave him confidence that things would be all right. On the other hand, just like, think about like, the things that maybe stir up a little fear in us. Right? Like things that we have no control over, things that we are powerless to stop. Like we're scared of the dark, right? not because darkness itself can hurt us, but because of unfamiliarity and the chance of something unknown coming and getting us. Or like, many more people fear flying than driving, even though all the statistics say flying is safer than driving. So why do we fear flying more? I think, one, like driving is more familiar to us, like we do it far more than we fly, most of us. And the second, like, when we're driving, we feel much more in control of a situation. Like, we aren't dependent on somebody else to get us from point A to point B safely. Like, we're in control. And then C, like, if, if something bad happens, like, we might have some kind of power to stop catastrophe. Right? Like, if your car breaks down, you pull over. If your plane breaks down, you're pretty much powerless. Like, and so what we see in Psalm 2 we come to this, is that even though sinful people and, and sinful nations are constantly trying to thwart God's plan, trying to get in God's way and stop what God's doing, God is not worried, God is not anxious, God is not phased, right? because A, nothing catches him by surprise, he knows their plans, and then B, he is in total control of the situation, and C, he knows he has the power to stop any threats. And so with that in mind, let's read Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and He terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have instilled my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss the Son, or He will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So as we, as we look at the psalm this morning, like, here's like the big idea that summarizes kind of the whole psalm. The nations rage, but God's anointed reigns. So as we, we read the psalm, we're going to see first, like the psalmist p- depicts the nations raging against God. But God's not concerned about their raging because He is in control. And He's in control because His anointed reigns. And He has a promised future that He's going to bring about, right? regardless of the raging of the nations. And so in the rest of our time this morning, I just want to walk through this psalm with you and see what the psalmist has to say about each of the little components. Like, we'll see what the psalmist has to say about the nations raging and, like, and God's attitude towards the raging of the nations. And we'll see what the psalmist has to say about God's anointed one and how that reigning anointed one means we have a promised future. So let's start by looking at the raging of the nations. So again, verses 1 through 3 say, Why do the nations conspire? Or in some translations, it's rage. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The psalmist talked of the nations raging. And I don't think that I need to try very hard to convince you that, like, that's just as true today as it was back when the psalmist wrote this. Right? Like, the nations still rage against God. Like, nations still look to disregard God and what He says is right and what He says is wrong. Nations still look to instill their own sense of morality. Like, CBS, a while back, ran a story about how Iceland was on the verge of, in their own words, quote, basically eradicating down syndrome from the country. And like, I don't think it's a secret how they're doing that. Just so we're clear, it involves ending a precious life made in the image of God. The nation's rage. In the UK, a 23-month-old named Elfie Evans, he was born with this rare neurological disorder. And he died when the UK government ordered that he be taken off life support against his parents' wishes. And the government refused to let the family move him to Italy, even though the Italian government 
had granted Elfie citizenship and was prepared to pay for all the travel and medical expenses to keep him alive. The nation rage. We could go on and on. Like we just commemorated 9-11 yesterday. Like the nation's rage. Like we can name many more examples, including stuff happening here in our own country. But my main goal this morning is not to convince you that the nation's rage. Like that's pretty self-evident. The more important question is, like, why do the nations rage, and then how do we respond to it? As to the question of why do the nations rage, I think verse 3 gives us the answer. So in verse 3 we read, Let us break their chains. This is the nation speaking. Let us break their, that's God's chains, and throw off their shackles. The nations rage. The nations plot against God because they want to be free of His rule and authority. They want to break free of His chains and shackles and do things their own way. Not realizing that God's way is actually the best way for them. And even though like, this psalm speaks of nations raging, ultimately, right, the raging of nations is nothing more than a collection of individuals raging against God. Though we may speak of the sins of a nation, like, all sins are committed by individuals not the nation as a whole. And this, this desire to break free of God's rule, right? what we perceive as chains and shackles and constraints about, against doing our own will, right? that desire to break free is the root of all sin. Right? That's true going back even to the very first sin in the garden. Right? Think back to the Garden of Eden and think about how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve. He told them if they ate the fruit, they would be like God. That they would no longer need to submit to God's rules and authority, so they could make their own rules. They could be their own God, and they could do whatever they pleased. This desire to rebel and to be free of God's authority was at the heart of the very first sin. And it has continued down through human history. Like so much sin is rooted in this desire to break free from the bonds of God and live our own life as if we know better what is good for us. And like one quote from, from one of the geneticists in Iceland makes this abundantly clear. And so the interviewer asked this geneticist, like, what does she tell women who are wrestling with guilt about the possibility of having an abortion to, for a Down, baby with Down syndrome? And she tells them this, like, this is your life. You have the right to choose how your life will work. And that's not a like, succinct, succinct like, modern restatement of the serpent's words to Adam and Eve in the garden. Like, I don't know what is. Like, it's all about you and your life and your happiness. That's what matters. Right, it's really easy to sit here and reflect on the state of the world and think, yeah, the world's falling apart so sad what's going on in the world. But if that's all we think, then I think we've missed the point. Right? Because, yes, the nations rage. Like people outside, they do things that rebel against God. Right? But so do I. And so do you. It's so easy to make things like into a matter of like those bad guys versus us good guys. But that's not the story the Bible tells. 
the Bible tells us that there is one good guy. It's not me and it's not you. There is one truly good, sinless person who ever walked this earth. One person who never tried to remove God from his rightful place and become his own God. His name is Jesus. There's only one good guy who stood against all the rebellion, all the sin in the world, including my sin and your sin. And the amazing and the glorious truth of the Bible is that that one good guy against everything else wins. And to feel the weight of this psalm, like we must see ourselves as people who at one point were in open rebellion against God, the King of the universe. We need to feel the weight of that's who we were. And even now, for those of us who follow Christ, even even after we've acknowledged Him as King, there are still times we find ourselves in rebellion against Him. There are still times when our old sinful nature, nature creeps up and we try to live life on our own terms, doing things our own way. We can still be prone to forgetting that God is the sovereign King of the universe. We try to take things into our own hands instead. And so if you want to just give yourself a quick test to see how, how deeply you're really trusting that God is in control, then I just want you to think about how you react to the nation's raging. As we said, like, no one is denying that the nations do rage. And no one's denying that there are terrible things that happen in the world. But the question is, like, how do we respond? And I was like, thinking about that this week, and like, for me at least, like, I came up with three kind of inadequate ways that I tend to respond to the nation's raging. And the first of those is pride. Like, I look at the sins of others, I look at the things other people are doing, and I, and I respond like the Pharisee who said, like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Like, like I might not be quite that blunt, right? but it's really easy for me to look at the sins of others and think, well, compared to that, I'm a pretty good person. I respond with pride to the raging of nations, the sin of others. The second inadequate way I tend to respond to the raging of nations is through like, legal means. Like I tend to think, like, if we could just pass the right laws to stop X or Y or Z, then, then this would solve that problem. And look, like, laws are definitely important. Like it's good to have laws that reflect and uphold the morality that God has instilled in us. Like, but good laws, like, the good laws are valuable for the functioning of society. Like, but, like, hear this. Like, the law is a terrible influencer of individual morality. If you think the law is going to solve individual moral problems, then your hope is in the wrong place. Our hope is not in the law. And the third inadequate way I tend to respond to the sin of others is through, through fear. I respond like, like the people of Israel, they prepared to enter the promised land. Right? And they looked at the raging of the nations and they thought, like, oh no, all hope is lost. Like, let's just go back to Egypt and be slaves again. That would be better. Like, it's so easy for me, especially if I watch like 45 seconds of the news, right? 
to, to look at the state of the world, to see its sin, to see its brokenness, and to react with fear and dread and despair. Those are my default reactions to the raging of the nation, to the sin of others. It's either pride or it's a desire for legal action or it's fear. And maybe for you it's similar. But now just compare those reactions to God's reaction to the raging of the nations. In verses 4 and 5, we see how God reacts. This is what the psalmist says. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. God looks at the raging of the nations and his reaction is not to become anxious, not to wring his hands, not to worry. His reaction is to laugh. God is unfazed by the nations raging. Like the idea that like, God's creatures could ever do anything to thwart God's plans is so preposterous that it's literally laughable to God. This is the only place in the entire Bible we read about God laughing. And the thing that inspires that laughter from God is the thought that some creature could possibly thwart what he will. Like I had this phase in college where I was super into Christian hip-hop music. Like, I'm sure that's not a surprise. Look at me. Right? <laughs> but like, I had, so I had, this, I had this phase where I was super into it. And like, one of my favorite songs in that season of life was a song called Our God is in the Heavens by an artist named Shai Lin. And that song is based largely on this song. And I want to share just a couple of lines from that song here because I think he does a really good job painting a picture of the futility of raging against God. I'm not going to wrap it, but, <laughs> but you can just listen to, to the lines. He writes, Why do the nations rage and all the peoples plot in vain? Their sin and offense is against his excellence, and they are not ashamed. And though he's lacking the power to shackle them now, sorry, as though he's lacking the power to shackle them now in the hottest flames, so they cock an arm to target his cosmic reign. That's like a kid with a super soaker trying to conquer Spain. Man thinks he's a pugilist trying to ball up his puny fist at the Lord who is ruling this. What's amusing is God just laughs like, who's this? And I love that line. Like, that's like a kid with a super soaker trying to conquer Spain. Like, like governments are swift right, to crush rebellions that pose real threats. But tomorrow... A kid shows up in Madrid with a squirt gun, threatening revolution. Like, no one's going to be terribly worried. They might laugh, but they're not going to worry. And that's God's reaction to the raging of the nations. Like, really? You think you can break free from my rule and thwart my plans? Like, do you know who I am? I formed you in your mother's womb. Like, I created the expenses of the universe by the power of my voice, and you're going to break free? It's laughable. And now we do, like, we need to be careful here. Because, right? like, I do not mean to imply that God is unfazed or unsaddened by the effects of sin. Like, God is 
grieved by the effects of sin. Jesus mourned over the sinfulness of Jerusalem. When I say God is unfazed, I just mean simply that He does not for one second fear that the schemes of sinful men will in any way frustrate His ultimate plans for the universe. God has ultimate confidence in His power to bring about His purposes despite any raging of the nations. And I was like really convicted as I thought about this song. That if I truly believe what I claim I believe about God's power and control in the world, then my reaction, like when I look out at the raging of the nations, should reflect God's reaction. Like I should absolutely mourn the effects of sin. But I should not feel pride in my own morality. I should not seek my ultimate hope in the legal system. And I certainly should not fear that the raging of the nations will ultimately prevail. Instead, I should trust in God and His ultimate power. And in fact, God is so powerful that not only do the schemes of sinful men not frustrate His plans, but God uses those very schemes to accomplish His plans. In Acts chapter 4, the Christians are the group of disciples gathered together and they're, they're facing persecution from raging nations. Like they're being persecuted. So they gather together to pray and as they pray, they quote this psalm. They say, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth rides up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're praying this psalm and then they go on to say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, whom you anointed. So it's saying like the ultimate example of the people raging against God, of nations raging against God, is that they plan to kill God's Son. But even killing God's Son, even killing God's anointed, did not thwart God's plan. The disciples go on to say, they, by killing Jesus, did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Nothing about that surprised God. God used the raging of the nations to achieve His purposes. God knew that what must happen in order to achieve His purpose of redeeming sinners for Himself is that His anointed must die. In order to forgive sins, the the Savior, Jesus, must go to the cross and die on our behalf. And So in His infinite wisdom, God used the raging sinfulness of the nations to achieve His purpose. How great of a God do we serve that he can use his enemy's schemes to accomplish what he will. And his will, according to the next portion of this psalm, is to set his anointed on the throne as king over all creation. Verses 6 through 9 say, I have instilled my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. 
Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. And so in these verses, the psalmist speaks of a reigning anointed one, of God's anointed reigning. And these verses are why this psalm gets classified as a royal psalm. They speak of God's chosen king. And originally, the, the people of Israel would have understood this as referring to their king. Like their speculation is read like at the coronation of new kings in Israel. There's one little problem. Like, no Israelite king, not even David, like came close to achieving the ideals laid out in this and other royal psalms. They just fall woefully short. Like, that's like asking, I will give you the nations, like all the nations. Like, they never got bigger than a small Middle Eastern country. And so as the scholar F.F. F. Bruce says, we have here, therefore, either the most blatant flattery the world has ever heard, or else the expression of a greater ideal. Like, even the Israelites, as they read these words, they knew, like, those words aren't fully true right now. But they looked forward to a day when, when the one who God would call Son, the truly anointed one, would come and the nations, all the nations, would truly be his inheritance. That the ends of the earth would be his possession. And thankfully, we on this side of the cross have the joy of knowing fully what the Israelites only knew in part. That the king, the anointed one, who would ultimately make these things true is Jesus. Jesus is the one who has the nations as an inheritance. Jesus is the one who has the ends of the earth as his possession. And by coming to earth and by living a sinless life and by going to the cross and bearing the sins of all who trust in him, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand to rule over the nations. Like all the nations sought to do to thwart God's plan by killing his son only served to fulfill God's good ultimate purposes. So we, we know this now, thinking on this side of the cross, looking back at Jesus. Right? But the question is, like, what do we do with that knowledge? And the last section of the psalm gives us the answer. Verses 10 through 12 say, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, in light of God's matchless power, like we have a promised future. That future is sure. Like nothing can stop God's good and perfect plan for the future, for the end of all things. The future is promised. And in light of that promised future, we're called to do two things. First, the psalmist tells us to serve the Lord with fear. Instead of rejecting the Lord's rule, celebrate it. God's rule should be seen as good news. His plans are good. He wants what is best for those who follow him. Why would we want to throw that off and reject that? 
Right? So we're called to serve Him. To live the life that He has called us to live. Not as a series of hoops to jump through to prove our devotion. We're called to serve Him because it is the path to the best life for us. And the second thing the psalmist called us to do here right, is to kiss the Son. And this picture of kissing the Son is a picture of bowing down in submission. We are called to show our submission to the Son's rule. Right, but we all have a choice whether we're going to do that or not. And the psalmist is very clear about like, the consequences either way. If you choose not to kiss the Son, not to submit to Jesus' authority, the psalmist says, He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. But if you do kiss the Son, the psalmist says, he says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So if you're, you're here, you've never trusted Jesus, you've never kissed the Son, you've never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, never trusted that by going to the cross, Jesus died to forgive you. Then I'd urge you to do that. Right? Kiss the Son. Submit to His authority. Right? Not because He is like some worldly authoritarian who demands it, but because He loves you. And He earnestly desires what is best for you. So those of us who are here who, who have trusted Jesus, right? who have kissed the Son, my encouragement is just simply this. Trust and rest. Like a lot of times we come to the Bible and we're looking for moral instruction. We're looking for things we can do to change our lives for the better, to things we can do to make ourselves a, a better person, things we can do to live a way that better serves God. Like and sometimes the Bible gives us that. Like there are certainly moral commands in the Bible. But sometimes the Bible just simply reminds us of who God is and then invites us to rest in that truth. I think this psalm is one of those times. It's an invitation to, to trust and rest in the fact that your God is mighty. That your God is in control. Rest in the fact that like, none of the brokenness None of the evil we see in this world will ultimately stop God's good purposes. Ultimately, like rest and trust that the final word of this psalm are true. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Take refuge in Him and trust that you are blessed. And as we prepare to take communion, right? communion is tangible opportunity to remind ourselves of what we trust in, what we take refuge in. So we take bread and we remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're reminded that God loved us so much that He went to the cross and had His body broken for us so that we could take refuge in Him. As we drink the cup, we're reminded of the blood of Jesus pouring down and again, this tangible reminder that God loved us enough to send His Son to die on our behalf so we could be forgiven of our sins and have refuge from destruction and hell.
So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give us a few minutes before we take a minute to reflect on anything you feel God calling you to reflect on this morning. Whether it's things that we've talked about during the sermon, maybe it's sin you've been wrestling with you need to bring and confess to God at that time. Next, a few quiet moments after I pray, and then we'll partake together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your power, your authority that nothing that I do, nothing that any other worldly power can do can interrupt your good plans for the universe. Think of that you are a good God, that your plans are good and they are sure and that you will see them to completion. God, would we rest in that power? Would we trust your goodness? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. 
saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you.